Oh, good evening, men. Man, I can see why. I think I said this before. They keep inviting you back, Dom. 17 years, man. That worship is fantastic. I hope all of you had as good of a day as I had. I took my son. We went and shot clay pigeons, I think you call them. He hit three. I was just hoping he hit one. I just wanted him to hit one, and he got three. I was like, man, last time I actually hit zero, to be totally honest. I was like, he outdid me. That's pretty awesome. Then we did the ropes course, and just he told me, he goes, Dad, I wish we just didn't have to leave today, which, you know what, is a good sign that he loves it up here. So hope you're having as relaxing and awesome a time as I am. Now, how many of you are out from outside of the Sacramento area, roughly? How many of you are from Sacramento? Okay, so you know the American South Fork River, right? Obviously. So a few summers ago, my wife's family was having a family reunion. Keep in mind, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, is one of 12 kids. So family reunions are, well, almost like this (laughs) sometimes, like maybe half the size. There's like 7,500 people meeting new cousins all the time. And our family decided to go whitewater rafting down the American South Fork River. Now, this is a full-day affair. And for our group, I don't remember, there must have been five or six plus rafts just for those in our party who went. Well, what they do is they, how many of you have been white rafting before somewhere? Okay, good. Most of you have. They spend time explaining like what happens, how you paddle, where you sit. If you get thrown overboard, don't try to grab something. Don't swim to the side. Lean back, put your feet up, kind of ride through and then get back in the boat. Well, the tour that we did The morning was probably three hours, and they were just ones and twos rapids, pretty low key. You have lunch, and then you jump in, and I think there's some kind of twos and threes that ups the game a little bit in the afternoon. Of course, once you've gone three hours, you're thinking, I got this, not a big deal. Well, one of the last things that I remember is we're approaching this rapid, and by the way, the guides have like names for all these rapids. That was new to me. I was like, oh, this one is called the hospital bar. (laughs) Some of you might know this actual rapid. I guess it's famous or infamous, they might call it. Well, my father-in-law is about 20 pounds bigger than I am, maybe 25 pounds sitting front right. I'm sitting in front left. All our members, we go down and we turn and we hit this rock. My father-in-law ends up in the back of the boat and I flip feet first and go overhead, over the top and land in the water. Now, you know, if you've gotten tossed out of the boat, there's a moment where you don't know what is up, what is down, getting breath. Like, you kind of have a panic moment. And I'm trying to get up, and I'm kind of hitting the bottom of the boat for a moment. Well, when I finally get back up, you know, I'm thinking instantly, I got to get back in the boat. But I remember the training, so I put my feet up, and I ride through the rapids. And the next rapid is actually called, I think it was called the rest area. (laughs) hospital bar to like the rest area. And when you get tossed out of the boat like that, all you're thinking is, I just want to breathe and I want to get back in the boat. You know, it's interesting to think about when our life, we get kind of our our life gets, we get thrown out of the boat, so to speak. What's our instant thought of what we want to do next? Well, somebody's life is physically turned upside down. It's like call 911, right? We don't even think about it. It's instinct because we've been trained to do that. Let's take them to the hospital because they're help. Well, what if we had a really negative view of hospitals? That would actually have a pretty sad effect on how many people would be helped, wouldn't it? 
An interesting question is what's more important? When somebody's hurting physically or when it's all said and done? When somebody's hurting spiritually. Now we are body and soul, so the body is important. But what we do with our spirits lasts for eternity. There was a study a number of years ago that was so eye-opening to me about how non-Christians view the church. And it was a book called Unchristian, so it was a number of years ago, but if anything, I actually think arguably the stats have gotten worse. And at the Barton Research, they came up with six conclusions about how non-believers as a whole view Christians and view the church. Number one, hypocritical. Say one thing and do another. Number two, too focused on getting converts. Numbers and converts. Number three, anti-homosexual. In fact, they said if you say I'm a Christian to many people, you might as well say, and by the way, I hate gays. I'm not saying that's true for most Christians. I don't think it is, but this is the perception according to this study. Number four, too sheltered. Number five, too political. Six, judgmental. And you could maybe add in an increasing number of circles, racist. Which has become the worst sin in some ways, hasn't it? Now, can you imagine if hospitals were viewed this way? Guy, they're too sheltered, they're hypocritical, they hate gays, they're judgmental. No one would go to a hospital. Well, that's increasingly how people are coming to view the church. In this study, they said the bottom line is only a small percentage associate the church with respect, love, hope, and trust. Friends, something is broken in our relationships with our increasingly secular world. Now, what do we do about this? I heard a professor by the name of Daryl Bach. He teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. And this was in 2014, but what he said made so much sense to me because we tend to think, well, that speaker will fix it. That book will fix it. It's somebody else's job. And he said the narrative is increasingly that Christians are bigoted and they're intolerant and they're hateful and they're too political. He said how we turn that is the next thought that enters a person's mind is, you know what, I've heard that narrative, but I know a Christian and he or she is not that way. In other words, it's not a program. It's each one of us reaching out with love and grace and kindness as Jesus did with sinners. So Friday night we kicked off talking about how freedom's not doing whatever you want without restraint. Actually, freedom is grounded in truth. It's living as God designed us to live. This morning we talked about, yeah, God designed us for relationships. And here's ways to build relationships with the next generation. What we're going to talk about tonight, my last uh, talk that I get to give is how do we have relationships with an unbelieving world in the way that Jesus did? How do we live out these relationships? And Jesus talks about this. If you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, it's in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you can't find it, it's right after Mark chapter 1. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark. Mark chapter 2. I'll read it. We're only going to look at three verses. Two, verses 15, 16, and 17. And kind of unpack this and see what lessons we can learn for better loving our unbelieving neighbors. So Mark chapter 2, verse 15. It says, And as he climbed at table, reclined at table, Jesus, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of the first things that always amazes me is why did these sinners want to hang out with Jesus? Because Jesus is the only one who's never sinned. I mean, when we're in sin, we're not drawn to holy people. If anything, we're kind of drawn to create space because they convict us and make us feel bad. And yet these sinners want to dine with the only sinless person who's ever lived. That tells me it's possible to be holy and loving at the same time. And somehow Jesus did it. Well, let's take a look at each of these passages and see what we, we can learn from this. It says, as he reclined at table. In other words, Jesus shared a meal with him. We talked about this morning, one of the powerful ways to build a relationship with anybody, and a particular with young person, is to share a meal. But we've lost in our culture I mean, we have Uber, we'll drop off food, we can go through, drive through. And that culture to share a meal with somebody was a sacred thing. There are multiple courses, and some of that was so you would slow down and just be with somebody relationally. There's something powerful about a meal. But the idea was, when you reclined with somebody, you considered that person an associate. You considered that person a friend. You were saying, I accept this person. It was a pow- it meant something in that culture when you shared a meal with somebody. So by the way, when Judas betrays Jesus, where does Jesus tell him he's going to betray him? At the table, at a meal. We miss the significance of this. But in that culture, it's like, wait a minute. At the one place you're supposed to be a friend, he's telling him he's going to betray him? That setting was intentional that Jesus told him over a meal. Now, what's interesting is the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap in the New Testament, don't they? But let's be honest for a moment. If we were there and we saw Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners, don't you think we'd at least minimally go, hmm, I wonder if Jesus knows what he's doing or more likely be like, Jesus, what are you doing with these tax collectors and sinners? Wouldn't we? I mean, it's easy to condemn the Pharisees, but I try to put myself there and go, you know what? If I was in their shoes, I probably would have been criticizing Jesus too. Because this was culturally taboo to eat with tax collectors and sinners. What's Jesus doing? But then it describes, it says, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So let's start with tax collectors. And most of us know that tax collectors had a bad rap. Why? Because the Rome, Ro- Romans were in control and they would use certain Jewish people to be tax collectors to collect taxes from their own people. So what the tax collectors would do is they would siphon off some of the funds from their own people, betraying them, and their own people could do nothing to stop them. So it's one thing to hate the Romans, but they don't worship the same God. They have a big military. They're oppressing us. It's another thing to betray your own people and side with the Romans and then take advantage of the own people. That's who the tax collectors were. So how many of you have seen the movie or the TV show, The Chosen? Have you seen this? Isn't it fascinating how they portray Matthew? 
the TV show starts where he has to get around very, very carefully because he was so hated as a tax collector. I mean, just realize this. Here's Jesus dining with these people who are betrayers. You better believe if we were there, we would be like, Jesus, what are you doing with the tax collectors? But then it says sinners. When I used to hear the story, I'd think, well, it must be like the murderers and the prostitutes, but it doesn't say that. The sinners were pretty much people who just didn't follow the law and they knew it. So it's not like the worst of the sinners we can imagine. It was just people who failed to keep the law and they knew that they failed to keep the law. So Jesus is dining with the very people that we would think he shouldn't dine with. But then it says this, it describes that the scribes of the Pharisees are the ones who's critical. Now, who are the Pharisees? In the New Testament, there's two primary religious groups that oppose Jesus. You have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees experienced God primarily through the temple. So the temple's destroyed in AD 70 and the Sadducees start to disappear from history. The Pharisees built their relationship with God on following the law. So the temple gets destroyed and you can always come up with new ways to follow the law. So then the next few centuries, you have the Talmud and the Mishnah showing up, which are practical ways and law books for Jews, how they would be faithful and obedient before the Lord. So these are the Pharisees who prided themselves in following the law. So the Pharisees, by the way, knew who you're supposed to dine with and who you're not supposed to dine with. They would have known the law and seen right away that Jesus is kind of out of bounds. That's who this religious group was. And Jesus sees what's going on and he responds beautifully. What does he say? He says this, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me say it again. This is the key point in this whole passage. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, was Jesus putting people in two categories? Like, is Jesus given the classic, there's two kinds of people here? By the way, you know what my favorite one is? My basketball coach at Biola, he's still there coaching basketball. He used to say this to us a few times. He'd say, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who return their shopping carts and those who don't. I cannot go shopping anywhere without hearing this voice being like, dang it, don't be that guy, return your shopping cart. Isn't that brilliant? It's those who think of themselves and inconvenience others, or those who think of others and inconvenience themselves. It's a brilliant. Now is Jesus kind of doing the same thing? Is Jesus saying, well, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the righteous and there's sinners. Because it seems like this is what Jesus is saying, doesn't it? He goes, well, just like there's people who are sick and those who are well, if you're well, you don't go to a doctor. There's sick and there's well. There's righteous and there's sinners. Is that what Jesus is saying? And the answer, you're right, is absolutely no. How do we know this? Because the Bible is clear that there's one kind of person and that person is called sinner, and that's you and that's me. How do I know this? Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned. You know what all means in Greek? 
it means all. Yeah, there's nothing fancy to it. I did not have to get a degree for that one. I think it's 1 John 1.8 that says, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. The Bible is clear that there is one group of people, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, all are sinners. So what does he mean when he says this claim of like, wait a minute, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what he's doing? He's calling them righteous ironically. They're not really righteous. They're self-righteous. Now, think about this for a second. Is it somebody just being sick who goes to a doctor? The answer is no. There's a lot of people who are sick who don't go to a doctor. Why? Maybe they don't have the money. Maybe they don't have the time. Maybe they're too proud. It's not just people who are sick, and it's not just people who are sick and know it who go to a doctor. It's people who are sick, and they know it, and they recognize they can't fix themselves. And they need a knowledge and power outside of themselves to be made well. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He's saying, I didn't come for you because you think you're already righteous. I'm spending time with sinners because they know they're sinners, they're not righteous, and would be open to the kind of medicine that I have to offer. And that's what Jesus was doing. He's offering grace. You see, he knew these tax collectors and sinners To become transformed people had to experience the medicine of grace first. And then they could be changed from the inside out and start living the way God wanted them to live. You see, Jesus was not a moralist. He wasn't a moralist. He didn't go around trying to fix everybody's behavior before he would dine with them. Rather, he dined with sinners and they dined with him. Because he knew they were not righteous and they were sick and they needed his grace and they needed his medicine to be made whole. That's what Jesus did. Now on the flip side, notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't finish with this and say, you know what? Hey, live your truth. To each his own Be true to yourself. Express yourself. Live your truth. He didn't say that. Jesus called out sin and he spoke truth. But he did it with love. And he did it with graciousness. And he did it with kindness. Friends, the Bible says they will know us by our what? No, our perfect theology. (laughs) Hey, even demons have perfect theology. You better not think for half a second I'm downplaying theology. I teach at Talbot School of Theology. We need to know things about God to love him and love others better. But let us not confuse having right beliefs with having a right love towards others. We need both. We need both. Jesus spoke truth and he did it with grace. 
If I want to be honest with you, I don't know how well we do this as a church today. I don't know. I do not want to be that guy who beats up on the church because the church is the bride of Christ. That's us. But friends, we don't love our neighbors always well. Sometimes we let political division affect us from loving people. Sometimes we let being right and winning an argument stand in front of humbling ourselves and loving others. One of my favorite presentations to do when I go to schools and churches is something I call my atheist encounter. And I put on glasses. I've done this at Hume here a number of times. In fact, I did a men's retreat once a few years ago. Maybe some of you are here. Is I'll role play an atheist and then I'll take questions from the audience and then I'll respond as an atheist might. Almost always about 20, 25 minutes into it, the Christian audience starts getting defensive and angry and sometimes even hostile towards me. Because I come up with pretty decent words because I'll study atheism and I'll come up with these responses. Then I always step out of character and the first question I ask is, how did you treat me? And there's this moment where like Christians look at me and be like, oh shoot, I was kind of a jerk. Now I love doing this, but... About six months ago, I was invited to present at a Christian school in Florida. And the Bible teacher asked me to do my atheist role play. I said, sure. As we're about to start, he goes, hey. He goes, I role play with my students all the time. He goes, is it okay if I introduce you as my real atheist friend? I think it'll make a much more interesting dynamic if we do this. And I've done that a few times. Almost always people know I'm not an atheist, but I was like, you know your students? If you think this will help, sure. So he introduces me as like a philosophy professor from, I think, UCLA in town for a convention and swung by to tell him why I'm an atheist. So I do the presentation, do this reveal, and then I have a great conversation with students and I'm done. But then like a few weeks after this in a couple months, I'm getting emails and then a barrage of emails. I mean, dozens of people saying, I watched this, I loved it. I'm thinking, okay, what is happening? They put it on their small Christian school website and it got over 3 million views last I checked. It went viral. I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. And then all of a sudden, one day it flipped. All of a sudden, the tone of the messages shift from, hey, you challenged me to live out my faith. Hey, you challenged me to love my atheist friends to, you are a lousy atheist. Shut up and never role play an atheist again. Now I'm getting dozens of these thinking, what just happened? Well, these two very prominent atheist YouTubers, one I know, one I hadn't heard of before, but it turns out, I think he has about 400,000 subscribers, a huge channel on YouTube. Turns out they did a review of my presentation and basically said, hey, we think you misrepresented atheists. We think this is a bad idea. We have an idea for you. We think you should bring in a real atheist. Don't role play, let us make mistakes, bring in a real atheist, which is a great idea. So I've got some Christian YouTubers contacting me, texting me going, dude, come on my show, do a response. And it just didn't sit well with me. I thought, okay, so atheist does, role, or Christian does atheist role play, atheists respond, and then Christians respond back. Like, is this how we're supposed to communicate at a distance? Here's why they're wrong, and I represent atheism right, like defend myself. It just didn't sit well. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to reach out to one of these two atheists, a young man who's 27 years old, 
and just see if he'd be willing to have a conversation with me kind of off air, so to speak. So I reached out and I said, hey, can we just Zoom? I just want to hear your story, where you're coming from. He agreed. So this is on a Friday. We jumped on a Zoom, the two of us, for an hour and talked. All I did was listen. Can I just tell you, my heart was broken about how he experienced being treated by Christians. In fact, here's the best way I can sum it up. He goes, Sean, when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. So I actually had to take karate to learn how to defend myself. The pain of being bullied paled in comparison to the pain of how Christians treated me when I started questioning my faith and became an atheist. That's heartbreaking. He said, one pastor said to him, this is the way he related. He said, the pastor said, you don't believe in God, you're going to die alone and burn in hell. Like, doesn't strike me as the loving Christian thing to say. I'm not saying there's not a point to speak truth and talk about hell, but so much more is about how and when we say it. So we had a conversation for an hour. My heart broke for this young man, 27 years old. Now, at this point, I, already, I had already done a response video, but not loaded it. And I said to him, I said, okay, it's Friday. Monday, I've done a response video. I think you're going to find it's very charitable. And at the end, you had a suggestion for me to bring in a real atheist. I have a suggestion for you. Here's my cell number. Watch it. If you accept it, text me or call me. I want him to not know what it was all weekend and have to think about it. Well, so he watches the video. I posted it on a, a Monday morning on, on YouTube. And I said, look, these atheists critiqued me and said I misrepresented atheists and I should bring in a real atheist. Here's the deal. I've actually been doing this for 15 years. I've taken my students to places like Berkeley and brought in atheists and skeptics to speak to my students for over a dozen years. I said, in fact, we've brought in dozens of the best atheists we can get. So you might not like our arguments, but I wasn't misrepresenting atheists. I was given the very arguments atheists gave to me. I said, but here's my suggestion. You said I should bring in an atheist. Great idea. That's why I've been doing it. But I realized I've had uh, an ex-Christian. I've had a Mormon, but I've never had an atheist on my YouTube channel. Would you come on my YouTube channel, be my first atheist guest? All I want you to do is share your story and how you think Christians can better love their atheist neighbors. And he agreed. He came on my show, friends, and it was an incredible conversation. It was an incredible conversation. Now, just last, the Friday before last, I invited him back on my YouTube channel to do a live Q&A now. We take questions, and we both answer it. Now, some people criticize me. They're like, you need to tell him he's wrong in the air. I was like, no, I don't think that's the place. If he's been burned and hurt by the church, what he needs is grace and love and kindness. And in due time in the right way, maybe I will be able to speak truth into his life. Friends, I think that's what Jesus did. He reached out in kindness. He showed love to people. He showed grace to people. There's a, a political commentator named is Kirsten Powers, and she grew up kind of agnostic, atheist home. She's been in USA Today and CNN and Fox News. She's politically on the left, but what's interesting 
is she described how growing up she didn't know any Christians. And basically no relationships with Christians. And she would get together with friends and amongst other things would make fun of conservatives and mock Christians. Just for being stupid and for being bigoted, etc. Until one day she met a guy, right? Isn't that how all interesting stories go? And this guy didn't fit the stereotype of what she thought a Christian was going to be like. What he said to her was something effective, and keep in mind she's like liberal, he said, do you consider yourself open-minded and tolerant and inclusive enough to consider going with me to church some Sunday? Isn't that a great way to frame that for somebody on the left? What do you say? Nope, I'm closed-minded. Yeah, no one on the left has ever said that. <laughs> Just like no one ever said cool Prius, no one on the left ever said that either. <laughs> I saw that bumper sticker in the back of a Prius. It's like cool Prius, no one ever. I was like, yeah, that's probably true. So she goes to church with him. And it turns out it was the preaching series by Timothy Keller on the reason for God. And she ended up becoming a Christian. Now, about five years ago, she wrote a book called The Silencing. And she considers herself liberal, but she said there's this increasingly intolerant, aggressive, far-left, ill-liberal approach that just wants to silence people. Now, I can make that argument, and I think it's true, but I'm a conservative, so people are going to say, we expect you to say it. So when someone left says that, it kind of gets your attention a little bit. So I'm reading through this book. I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. That's right. What's her suggestion going to be? Keep in mind, this was like a $27 hardback book. I get to the end, and I read her solution in like one paragraph. And I'm sitting at my desk going, really? I just spent a few hours on this book, $27, and that's her suggestion. I kind of tossed it on my desk and was like, man, I could have saved a lot of money, a lot of time. But then I thought about it more. And then I thought about it more. I was like, you know what? She's exactly right. You know what she said? She said, if you agree with what's in this book, here's my challenge to you. Go out and make some unlikely friends. Go out and start to get to know people who see the world differently. That's the beginning of how beliefs are changed. And I thought, now that I get it, that was worth $27 and some. She's right. That's what Jesus did. He went to the sinners. He went to the tax collectors. And he knew that chapter we saw, they're called tax collectors and sinners, I think two, maybe even three times in that short passage. Mark wants to make sure we don't miss this. That was their label. That was their identity. And Jesus went to them and dined with them and loved them and cared for them. Who do you go out in relationship to, to love like Jesus loved? I was driving to speak in the kind of the Southwest a few years ago when we drove by this Unitarian church and I was driving with a pastor to go preach at his church and we were about five or 10 minutes away. I was like, wow, there's a Unitarian church down the road from your church. Have you ever gone over and met the pastor? And he kind of looked at me, he's like, no, why would I do that? It's a Unitarian church. And I thought, I didn't say anything. I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. That seems to be the exact opposite of what follows to me. If it's a Unitarian church, your pastor and is 10 minutes away, why wouldn't you go meet this guy? 
Go say, hey, let's go get some coffee. I want to hear your story. Tell me about your faith journey. What do we have in common? Where do we differ? Who do you think Jesus is? If this pastor's not willing to reach out to somebody 10 minutes down the road, who's also a kind of pastor, then who is? That's what Jesus did. So let me just ask you a couple questions. How do you show love to people who are different than you? How do you show love to people who are different than you? When this whole George Floyd thing went down about a year ago, obviously we're seeing as much division and brokenness in our culture as we've seen in a while. And I saw a lot of Christians making political statements on the left and the right and dividing. I said to my son, I said, you know what? You have someone in your life that you love who's black. My son is 17, so this is a year ago. He's 16. I said, what do you think about reaching out to him and just asking if he's comfortable? If we could take him out to coffee or lunch and just hear his story about how he's processing this, if he's comfortable. And my son was like, that'd be awesome. Gave a little time for things to settle just because there was a lot of heated emotions. Called him up and said, hey, my son and I, if you're willing, would love to take you out for lunch. We just want to hear your story. We want to hear your experience. Help us understand what this is like for you. So we went out and we asked him a ton of questions about his experience, how he understands race. All we did is listen. At the end, I'll never forget what he said. I told my son, I said, our job here is to listen and to understand and to show love. That's it. At the end, he said to me, he goes, you know what? I appreciate you guys. I said, why? He said, I had another friend call me up and say, hey, do you want to have a conversation? I said, sure. And the moment I started to talk, he cut me off and gave a long lecture on race. And then the conversation was done. He thought he didn't really want to listen and understand. He goes, some healing takes place here when we listen and we understand others with a different worldview. Friends, how do you show love to others? It's more important to understand than it is to be understood. It's more important to listen than it is to speak. Second question. How do you show love to non-Christians in your life? How do you show love to non-Christians in your life? I was traveling through Ohio not long ago. and met a youth pastor, and his story really impacted me because this youth pastor became the advisor for an LGBTQ club at the public school. Now, before I tell you the story, does a red flag jump up to you like, wait a minute, why would you support that? Why would you be a part of that? If you have that hesitance, just listen for a moment. He said he was on campus doing ministry, and this group of students didn't have an advisor. So they asked him to go, sure, I'll be the advisor. I said, well, why did you do that for an LGBTQ club? He says, they wanted to hang out with me, and I could be present. Why wouldn't I want to be present with them? I was like, that's a fair point. I said, okay, when you got to this club, what were the conversations like? He said to me, these students, and this is about probably four or five years ago. He said, these students really felt marginalized. They felt mistreated. They felt like nobody loved them and nobody cared for them. That's how they saw the world. And I said, well, did you ever engage him? He said, yes. At one point, they asked me, they're like, why don't you hate us? He goes, I don't hate you because I'm a Christian. I love you. And they're like, you're a Christian and you love me? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And he's like, Sean, I'm in a public school in the LGBTQ club. And they're asking me to pull out my Bible and tell me what it says. 
like the irony's not lost. He says, so we started to talk about what the Bible says. He goes, but to be honest with you, I wanted to shift from some of the passages like Romans 1 and Leviticus 18. I wanted to move to the person of Jesus because I wanted him to see the power of Jesus' compassion and his love for people who are marginalized, the sick, his love for women, for the poor. There's no one in the history of the world who loved people more who've been marginalized than Jesus. So we shifted. We started talking with Jesus. He said, Sean, four of them started coming to my youth group, and three of them became believers in Jesus Christ. Do you know how many Christians would criticize him for being an advisor in an LGBTQ club? Just like people criticized Jesus for dining with sinners. You know, when it's all said and done, I fear God much more than I fear men. That's a question you and I have to answer today, isn't it? Who do we fear? Do we fear the opinions of people? Or do we fear God? That's a question. Who do you fear most when it's all said and done? And I think sometimes we don't share our faith. I think sometimes we don't get in relationships with people. Because you know why? We fear the opinions and the rejection of human beings rather than fearing God. We had some neighbors. I'll close with, a, with, with this story. We had some neighbors years ago who... Uh, kids the same age, connected with them, started becoming friends. And we're like conservative Christian home. They're like left-leaning, progressive family from Oregon. And all the stereotypes go with that for both of us. But we were just friends. And this, this fellow, I would talk with him. I mean, we just have talks about Jesus now and then. I didn't force it, didn't want to be like, oh, here comes Sean, he's going to open up to John 3.16. But I invite them to events, we'd have conversations, we'd dialogue, and there just didn't seem to be any openness. But his wife joined a Bible study with my wife. And after about two or three years, she became a follower of Jesus. She became a Christian. It was cool, it was amazing. When we had conversations, it was like he shut it down and had no interest. And I remember telling my wife, I'm like, just... I remember, I don't even remember how I worded it, but I was like, I don't think he's ever going to believe in Jesus. He is way too hard-hearted. And then for different reasons, they moved to the Northwest. And of course, I thought, man, now they don't have us in their life. Great Christians, how is God going to break through? <laughs> and I hope you're picking up on the irony in my lack of faith. Also, I'm noticing like he's posting C.S. Lewis quotes thinking, this is interesting. And so they came down a few months later to visit me, and, and at this point I had to know. I was like, okay, you're quoting C.S. Lewis. You're talking about Jesus. Are you a Christian or not? I got to know. And he's like, yes, I believe in Jesus. But what was interesting is when I would train my students to go on these trips to engage atheists, I would bring my friend in because he was a smart agnostic to teach my students how to have conversations with people without it getting heated. And I remember one day, 
he, he said, he made this point to me. And he was talking in front of my students. He goes, look, if Christianity was true, I would want to believe. If you guys can convince me, I would love to be a Christian. And for some reason, I, I don't remember how the conversation went there. Somebody brought up something about pot. Like, should pot be legal or not? And he goes, he goes you know what? Bottom line is I don't think the government has any right to come into my home and tell me how to live. And I stopped. I said, I think you have your answer to your question before. You don't want the government coming in your business telling you how to live your life. I said, God is not just the U.S. government. He's the government of everything and wants to tell you how you live your life. Maybe for the same reason you don't want someone telling you if you can use pot or not is the same reason you don't want God coming in your life telling you how to live. He looks at me and goes, can you restate that? I don't understand. I tried three times. I was like, I think I'm a communicator. That's my job. Maybe I'm failing. And I was like, okay, we'll move on. When they moved up to the Northwest, he ended up becoming a Christian. And what's interesting, he said, even when we talk about God, there was like a 1% thought in my mind, maybe you're right that at least mildly haunted him. Isn't that interesting? It's like, I still had this doubt that maybe God did exist. He became a Christian, I interviewed him. And he said, you know what? He pointed back to that example. He said, I didn't believe I don't think I wanted God to exist. But when he hit a point in his life, a rock bottom, and he was broken, guess what? There was a new openness. An openness. And thank God in his brokenness, he had some Christians in his life that he went to. The question is, who is that for you? When their lives are turned upside down and they're tossed out of the boat, who thinks of you and says, you know what? Man, he is going to listen to me. He's not going to judge me. He's going to show grace and he's going to love me. That's how Jesus related to non-believers amongst other things. Friends, we are called to mentor the next generation. And this generation of young people needs you in their life. They need you. They need you badly. But there's also an unbelieving world that's out there. And in our cancel culture today, you know what's lacking? The very thing that Jesus offered. Cancel culture, there's no forgiveness, you're done. Jesus says, I won't cancel you because I paid the debt on the cross. That's the beauty of grace. So how do you love people who hold different views than yourself? How do you love non-Christians? And maybe who's one person you can reach out to in your back and just show God's grace and goodness and the medicine of his kindness too. Because Paul tells us it's your kindness that leads to repentance. Amen. Fellas, I got to wrap up. There's a handful of books that are left back there. If you want one, I'm taking the rest with me. By the way, if you're here, a handful of you have told me, you're like, you know what? I couldn't afford this weekend. Someone paid for me. If that's you and you want a book, just take one. Take one. The last thing I want is money to be an issue that you can't get a book. 
just walk up and say, hey, I could really use this. I'll be like, God bless you, brother. Take it. Just read it if you take it. That's all I ask. All right? Read if you take it. It is a free gift. I don't want that to be an issue for anybody. Some of you have asked, hey, how can we, like, follow kind of what you do? I do a few things. My website I should have thrown up here is just seanmcdowell.org. We've got a podcast I co-host at Biola. Once a week, it's all the kind of stuff I talk about, relationships, theology, apologetics, culture. It's called Think Biblically. I have a YouTube channel by God's grace that's just kind of taken off in the past few years. I think the next month or two, I'll have 100,000 subscribers, which honestly just totally humbles me. But once or twice a week, do interviews and videos. In fact, earlier this week, I just interviewed Craig Keener, who's one of the world experts on miracles. He's done the most exhaustive, careful study of miracle claims today and shows that there's medically documented miracles. There's miracles caught on video that are legitimate, established miracles and more. Blew me away, just interviewed him. So if that's a resource for you, it's on the YouTube channel and there's a whole bunch of other stuff on the website. I am all over social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Yes, I am on TikTok because I just want to reach the next generation. Hey, you know what? I want you guys to know something. The last thing I'm going to say is when I started to teach high school, my first couple years were actually pretty rough. In fact, a friend of mine over here, if you've not met him yet, Aaron Fanko, raise your hand. Aaron hired me 20 years ago, my first high school teaching job. And honestly, he probably shouldn't have. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but you gave me a chance. And I love that. Thank you for coming up here. I, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, when I started to teach high school, I remember my first couple years were rough. And I thought, who could help me think through and be a better teacher? You know who I went to? Eric Thomas. You remember this, Eric? We were in a hotel room at ETS somewhere. I was like, Eric, I need some help, man. I am lost. And to this day, I still remember some of the examples you gave me. And it shaped the way that I teach. So, you've enjoyed this, you're going to love Eric. In fact, if you didn't enjoy me, you're still going to love Eric. You're blessed for the next three days. Wish I could be here, but more important than hanging out with you guys that I love is going to be a dad and to watch my son play hoops. So God bless you guys.